This is episode 16 with Alan Burgo on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. What are rampy ramps and why are they so coveted among foodies and chefs? Alan Burgo and I join forces on today's episode to discuss the obsession over wild leeks, Midwestern matsutakes, and edible weeds. We also talk about how Alan grew up in Midwest Minnesota, how his style of mushroom picking has evolved over the years, and how Alan jokingly says he's been supporting his local Amish community since 2013. In today's episode, you'll learn how to sustainably harvest springtime ramps, why you should grow an invasive weed garden, and two, not one, but two popular wild condiment recipes and much, much more. Alan Burgo is the executive chef at Lucia's Restaurant in Minneapolis and chief content creator and author of ForgerChef.com. Thank you for joining me on Ancestral Health Radio today, Alan. Yeah, it's great to be here. I really like what you have going on over at ForgerChef.com. A lot of those things, a lot of the, the wild foods that you have over there are pretty obscure to a lot of the people that may be unfamiliar with your work. And, and I'm really appreciative that there's somebody out there using their culinary knowledge to really showcase a lot of these wild foods for people. So I was thinking maybe we could just open that up and you could tell us a little bit about what you do over at Forger Chef and what you'd like people to know about it. Yeah, well, I'll start, uh, I'll start by telling you basically how I got started. I have been cooking since I was a kid, since I was like 15, and it was kind of always my, my, it was always my job. It was always how I got my money. And I started going to college and I kept cooking. And basically, I ended up at a restaurant where one of the chefs would bring in some wild mushrooms here and there. And the wild mushrooms were the most expensive things that we got. They were the most special ingredients that we got. You know, we, we had a set menu, so we had to come up with special things just to use them. And it was fascinating. But kind of what happened is I ended up seeing from the chef perspective first the wild plants and mushrooms as opposed to going and getting a guidebook. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got spoon fed and shown here's all the stuff that chefs would like to work with and buy that is worth cooking. And I also got taught how to use all of it. And at the time, I still had time to go outside and frisbee golf once in a while. So little by little, I started to kind of notice some of the things that the foragers would bring in when I would be outside with my friends. Yeah, that's pretty And cool. then 
it just became kind of like stumbling over a block of ice and finding that there was an iceberg underneath. And then I started buying guidebooks and trying to teach myself about a lot more than I was taught about at the restaurant and just applying the same culinary principles and things that we use at the restaurant to larger variety of species. And I really started out with mushrooms as, I mean, to me, they're will always be the most exciting, the most fleeting. They have the shortest lifespan and shelf life. It all started with the mushrooms and everything else kind of was second. You know, the, the nettles are a prize if I strike out on morels, if right. that makes any sense. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, that's something that I've really worked hard to kind of identify myself with is with the mushrooms because I have the beautiful Santa Cruz mountains in my backyard and apparently they have some like of the largest morels they have some of the largest chanterelle mushrooms too I've got a huge bag of them I, I think I showed you on a call previously to this but um, I think that's really awesome the, I mean mushrooms especially for for me it, it, they're only here for a short period right they have small life cycle so they're they're pretty prized and that's something that I like to tell people also is that in some of the best restaurants that you'll ever go to, the reason why they're so expensive is because a lot of their food will more than likely be wild food. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's more and more restaurants that incorporate wild food into their menus. I mean, I would definitely go as far as saying it's a fad now. Mm. Uh, it kind of started with, I mean, Noma. You know, Noma, in, uh, they've been best restaurant in the world for a number of different years with Rene Redzepi's super famous. Right. And the whole menu's wild. Uh, I mean, when I started, I didn't even know what the word foraging was. I didn't know who Rene Redzepi was. I had no idea. I just knew that I thought wild mushrooms were really, really cool. Yeah, well, you know what? Maybe let's bring it back a little bit. Let's talk about where you did come from. If you didn't come from a place of mushrooms or you didn't grow up around this type of ecology, other than frisbee golfing, which I love, by the way, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about how you, you typically grew up. How did that look like if you weren't growing up around mushrooms and uh, wildlife? Well, how did a typical Alan Burgo childhood look like? Well, I grew up kind of half and half on a family farm and with my mom after my okay. parents split up in Midwestern Minnesota. And I was like, I would say most kids are today, super detached from nature. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't go outside and tell you what a plant was. I didn't know what season corn or zucchini or peppers grew in. I didn't know what a rutabaga was. I had no idea what, you know, seasonal ingredients were or when they grew or why you would even care. I mean, as a kid, I just wanted to play video games. Yeah. Let's play some Street but Fighter. Food food was the lens. Yeah. Playing Street Fighter and Final Fantasy. More exactly. So. <laughs> food was the lens that it, uh, yeah, the food was the lens that let me kind of get in touch with my world and appreciate it more. It was the way that I would look at, you know, anything really. Uh, one thing I say is everyone eats and they eat every day. 
uh, food's a, a great way to connect with people because it's something that everyone does. Right. Yeah. Uh, to kind of touch to kind of touch back on how I got my start again. The the website I started uh, foragerchef.com. That was an experiment. I was living in my friend's basement at the time, and kind of as part of paying rent, I would cook him breakfast pretty much every day. And <laughs> nice. I would be just making whatever I wanted, wacky stuff that I was picking. He might be eating mushrooms. He might be eating plants or just whatever we had in the fridge, uh, which is kind of how I cook. You know, a lot of times it's just off the cuff, very natural. And he... He was like, "Man, this stuff is so cool. We, you got to share this with people. You have to, you have to show people what you're doing. This is really, really cool, really interesting." So he was a digital marketing professor, mm-hmm. and basically just used me as an experiment. And he said, "We're going to make you a website." And I was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, I guess." Yeah. And I thought, right. I thought we would make the website, and then everything would be done. And it it was not like that because it, so far it's never done. done. Yeah. It's a never never ending process. Uh, yeah. But the the food aspect of it, I mean the website is kind of uh, it functions as a journal for me, a way to share thoughts, things, comments about the restaurant industry. But the focus is definitely on food wild food, mushrooms, obscure, wacky, heirloom foods. Because the resources, I mean, there's lots of resources on how to hunt wild foods and identify them. Mm -hmm. The culinary resources, they're getting better. They're getting a lot better. I mean, like, exponentially they're getting better. But for years and years and years, uh, wild food has just been maligned by horrible recipes and terrible weird technique yeah i mean to be that's honest not coming from a place of of culinary education and it makes yeah. it makes wild food get a really bad rap <laughs> yeah and that's you know i think it's important so, that's why we have you here because i i would like somebody here to talk about some of these things and how we can transform these uh, I guess forgotten foods, because really these are the type of foods that native people here knew were in abundance and knew that they could live and sustain their life way off of. I'm really interested to know how we can prepare these too, you know, and I'm excited to have you on maybe in the future so that we can talk about some other things uh, regarding wild foods and how to prepare them. So, so you found this excitement of foraging. Let's go back into that. Tell me more about where, where it's eventually led you now. I mean, eventually, I had found kind of the most common species of edible things. So it led me to research. It led me to, I mean, David Aurora is probably everyone's Bible for wild mushrooms. It's a massive, massive book. He's got a couple other ones. Some of them are smaller. But his book, Mushrooms Demystified, is pretty much the standard it's the for mushroom hunters. 
it's the it is literally the tome. It's a massive book, but that is a great resource. And I started out just digging through David Aurora to see what I could find, and from there, it really led me to the internet. As there's kind of a little more, I'd say, cutting edge information on mushrooms. You have uh, Michael Kuo from Mushroom Expert does a really, really nice job. And he has a lot more kind of current information. Okay. Uh, right around in my area, too, you have uh, Tom Volk from the University of Lacrosse. He's a very, very well-known mycologist. And he shares a lot of information online, too. But really, the, the excitement of finding the mushrooms made me just want to find more mushrooms. And I definitely understand why people go so crazy about them. It's, it's definitely a, a niche interest. But once I, I've kind of been thinking I should do, write an article for somebody on how mushrooms are like Pokemon. Because you got to catch them all. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like you you find yeah you find one and then you want to know it's all down. You want to know all of them. You want to keep you want you want to keep recreating basically the high that you get from the discovery. That first and experience. That's just, yeah, that's what I keep. That's what I keep chasing. That first experience. That first feeling of when you really understand and get to know an ingredient so intimately that you can tell what it is at a couple hundred paces, that's, that's what I want more of. So I've been trying to find more species. Mm. And what's really, really fascinating is that we, we, don't, we don't know exactly everything that's here in our areas. You know, they don't, they don't know everything that's growing in California. I don't know every single thing that's growing in Minnesota, but we have had some, some great discoveries in the last couple of years in the Midwest. I mean, there's a number of mushrooms around here that I know uh, kind of been in the same vein that I operate in. Mm-hmm. And we found, Takis over the last couple of years, which in all the guidebooks, I mean, this is the exciting part is we have guidebooks that supposedly tell you what you can pick and what you can't pick and what grows here and what doesn't grow over there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Matsutakis are not in any guidebook for the Midwest. Right. So that was a huge surprise. There's- and can can you explain for people that aren't familiar with the Matsutake mushroom, well, what's so special about it? Well, I know for a long time they were the most expensive mushroom in the world. They are usually thought of as a Japanese mushroom, mm-hmm. and the mushrooms are given as gifts to businessmen, and they come in a little box, and they have to have the dirt still attached to the stem because uh, it is as something to do with the the power of them is more complete or something like that when it's See, I didn't even know they that. need to be complete. Oh yeah, they can't they cannot be trimmed at all. If you're gonna sell matsis in Japan, they have to be totally complete 
with everything on the stem and you can't trim them. Oh, wow. Which is kind of counterintuitive for a mushroom hunter like me where I always trim the stem to look yeah. for bugs because we have tons of bugs over here. But they're very, very expensive and they have an aroma that's like, man, it's it's not like any mushroom you've ever smelled before. <laughs> right, it's super kind of like cinnamon, pine, red hots. It's really, really funky. But... They can still go, I still see the prices fluctuate up to like 40, 50 bucks a pound, depending on the grade and the wow. age of them. I mean, you have stories in, you know, a couple of different books and urban legends about there being gun battles in the woods in the Pacific Northwest after we discovered they were in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, there's some serious but mushroom as as, hunters. Like, there, there's, excuse me. I, I, yeah, I hear oh, that yeah. there's some serious, serious commercial mushroom hunters out there that um, it is like an all-out war. We just posted a an article from Eater Magazine from a buddy of mine, Taro Isakalpala, the founder of Four Sigmatic Foods, and he was talking about the mushrooms and how it can be so cutthroat that really sometimes you got to be careful whose patch Absolutely. or spot that you're 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 finding because sometimes that can that can equal some big trouble. Yeah, and I mean, it's that's nothing new in Europe. It's been like that forever. I mean, especially over there because you have truffle patches. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are very, very protective of their spots. Even in the Midwest, where the only mushroom a lot of people know of is the morel, I see death threats online. Wow. I see people trying to sell their public land patches oh for thousands and thousands of dollars on Craigslist. Oh, no uh, yeah, it's, it gets, it gets a little nutty, but yeah, the moral of the story is we, we've been finding things that we didn't think grew here and we're only going to find more. Uh, I mean, another example is porcinis. Mm -hmm. So we have, Porcini mushrooms, a lot of people know of. You can find them dried in, you know, grocery stores around the country. Most of them are going to be European porcinis, which have a much stronger scent than our local porcinis. But when we talk about porcini, we're basically talking about one name called Boletus edulis. But there's actually many, many types of mushrooms within that, which is, it's called a species complex. So when we pick porcini here, say when I'm picking them in Minnesota, I could be picking a couple different types that are all technically porcini, but they're all technically different. Mm -hmm. And another thing I found of this year, well, typically we pick porcini under oaks. At least I do. But we also have a decent-sized Eastern European population. And I had a woman contact me last year out of the blue about mushrooms, which happens pretty regularly. I'm sure. And she said, I just, found, I just found the largest harvest of porcini that I've ever found in 30 years. Because oh, wow. we had a really, really rainy season. Yeah. And she said, I'd like to bring them in. So I said, okay, we will, we will buy all your porcini, bring them on in. 
and she brought them in, and they didn't look like any porcini I'd ever picked. Oh wow! They had a red, they had a red cap to them. They had a red flush on the stem, and the stems had all these tiny little pinholes in them, but oh, they weren't from bugs. Oh, okay, so they were uh, porous. It was kind of like a, it, it was kind of like a perforation of the stems. And also they have that they also had the kind of the telltale uh, really fine what's called reticulation it looks like veins on the stems so they had that so I know okay I I taste some they're not bitter because you can eat bullets and taste them they're not going to hurt you mm-hmm. you can just spit them out I taste them in the field to make sure they're not bitter they tasted great. Why so would you taste I knew this them to was be some sort by, of by cousin the of the porcinis. Why would I taste them to make sure they're not bitter? Mm-hmm. Well, you and anyone who's eaten, if you've ever eaten a bitter mushroom, a bitter bolete, it's the mo- if you've ever had that feeling where spinach dries your mouth out, mm-hmm. imagine that, you know, times 50 and the most bitter horribly bitter taste Super that you ever had <laughs> it, it is the most astringent the most bitter it's like it is not meant to be eaten in, this... in my opinion i actually i know some people that eat bitter mushrooms and try to preserve them in syrups and things and mm-hmm. put them on pancakes I'm sorry, that's not that is not for me. Yeah, <laughs> okay. you don't want to eat bitter bullies. Okay, I was going to ask you definitely, if that was I've like... had I've had mushroom hunters. No, 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 no. You do not want to eat bitter. That's basically the only thing you're looking for yeah, with Because I hear more bullies, more like bitter mushrooms or more the medicinal mushrooms. Is that is that right? More the bitter mushrooms typically tend to be more shelf mushrooms, more uh more medicinal mushrooms. Is is that why you also taste it to make sure that the bully isn't bad maybe? No, I just taste, basically, it's going to be bitter, uh-huh. or it's not going to be bitter. Oh, okay. And I don't want any bitter bolete. Gotcha. You, and for the most part, those are going to be a bolete called Tilopolis phileus, mm. uh, the bitter porcini. And, yeah, I don't, I don't eat that. I can't really speak to any medicinal aspects of that. But, yeah, you want to make sure they're not bitter. But I've had mushroom hunters bring me in. 20 pounds of bitter bully okay and try to sell them and you you have you know people see oh i can go out in the woods and pick mushrooms and sell them for money a lot of these mushroom hunters they may know what a mushroom is but they may they might not even understand yet that there's bitter varieties and there's things that you would not want to sell or things that you could sell to a restaurant that would really hurt their credibility. <laughs> right. If you're okay. a restaurant that serves sure. bitter, bitter mushrooms, you know, anyone that, that any kind of mushroom hunter or someone that knows about wild mushrooms at all knows that, okay, you did not understand what this mushroom was and you could potentially hurt people. Right. And that is kind of a scary part of things because with more people wanting to pick more mushrooms and sell more mushrooms to more restaurants, and more chefs want to serve more obscure mushrooms. Mm-hmm. People need to be educated. They need to know what they're picking. They need to know what the variations can be and the lookalikes and all of that. And that's also, I mean, 
part of another reason why I do what I do is I want to try to make sure that there's some information out there. I mean, my my information is not completely comprehensive. I'm, I'm not a mycologist. I'm a weird chef-mushroom-hunting hybrid, yeah. but it fills a niche that I think is going to be a little bit more needed, as especially chefs and mushroom hunters try to go digger, they try to go deeper and one-up each other continually, which I see a lot of. The mushroom hunting is a very, very competitive market. Right. Or, you know, just in general for people who are trying to find more food sovereignty. You know, they're looking for a way to become more connected with their local ecology, with their bioregion, and they just want to um, they just want to connect more with their food because I see it kind of as somebody is sick, they start shopping better at, let's say, the regular grocery store. From there, they say, okay, well, I'm getting healthier. I'm sure I can improve upon this. Maybe they start shopping locally at their farmer's market, and then they stumble across our podcast here, and they're like, oh, well, then obviously the next step might be to look and forge for my own mushrooms or find some mushrooms that I might be able to eat. And it's funny for me, I, I only know how to cook mushrooms like one way. <laughs> you know what I mean? For me, it's like butter, garlic, shallots. That's like how I do my my mushrooms. And you just mentioned that there were some people that they know how to pickle the mushrooms, I, which I've seen on, on, your, uh, on your website. And there are also um, people trying to put mushrooms in syrups and things like that. I don't even know how to do that yet. Like that's, I'm, I'm not even sure. So I think your website is a, a super huge resource. And, and some of the stuff that you, you have on there just looks so delicious, so ridiculously good. And um, cause so for myself, when I'm out mushroom foraging, I only take what I need. Like I only take like a, a little bit, uh, unless of course I can dehydrate them and save them for later. What do you say to people who want to start foraging for mushrooms and they want to go out there? Maybe they're not into selling the mushrooms, but they're looking to just forge them for themselves. Do you have like a rule like, oh, I'm just going to grab like a basket full or just enough for me to eat for today. Like, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you do that? Cause I know some oh, that's people, a great question. I know some people that they, they're also like, I, they're purists and they say, Oh, well, if I see a patch, I need to pick every single one of those. And, you know, I need to carry them with me in a mesh bag and sprinkle their spores all over the forest, you know? Um, but for, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just gonna, I see a couple chance. I'm going to take a couple of those home i know where the spot is you know not too many people that i know you know are looking for them and if they are i mean i think i stumble on a good spot but anyways i just take what i need i go home i cook them and i eat them right then and there so what do you say to that i would say that how i pick has definitely changed over time okay it's changed with the way that i see other people picking and just with the you know hindsight's 2020 the the realization of kind of what i call the neanderthal instinct where you know you go out into the woods and you see a whole bunch of chanterelles you see a, a golden field of chanterelles yeah. and and this this deep part of your mind that we've kind of lost touch with you know, starts going and it, it's telling you these are all yours. Oh yeah, you get these so excited. These are all yours. <laughs> yeah. You found them. These are all yours. Take and they are going to be food that will fuel you 
I give them away too. And they're all yours. And, you know, and ab- absolutely, absolutely. But there's, I just think there's a natural tendency in all of us that comes along from, you know, the survival of the fittest that when you find a bunch of mushrooms, you have to take them all. <laughs> it's that mushroom that you're talking about. You bring them home. And then you let them you let them rot in your fridge because you don't have time to cook them all, so they turn into a puddle of muck. I've done that before. Or a big bag of writhing maggots. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. And there's yeah. There's good there's good and bad to that. The good part is that you really cannot overpick mushrooms. You can definitely over harvest plants, but with mushrooms Think of harvesting mushrooms like picking an apple off of a tree. So the tree is underneath the ground, and that's the mycelium. That's what's making the mushrooms grow. The fruiting body is the apple. Mm -hmm. So you can pick the mushrooms and really not harm the tree, just like you would pick an apple off of a tree. And there's definitely a case to picking what you see, because if you don't, with the shelf life, a lot of those mushrooms are probably going to go rotten. And mm-hmm. they're probably just going to go back to the earth. Yep. Which isn't really a nece- necessarily a bad, a bad thing either. As far as people that only have the spore bag because <laughs> the mushrooms are not going to be able to reproduce if they don't have the, mush- the mesh bag. Yeah, I, just, I don't believe that. Uh, I don't carry a mesh. I carry a bag that has mesh on the bottom, but it also has concealed sides. It's an Italian uh, mushroom hunting bag. Oh, what? Because You're going to have to let me know about that. Yeah, it's really cool. But basically, you know, like I said, mushroom hunting is so competitive. Mm-hmm. I may not exactly want everyone to see what's in my bag. Oh, for sure. D- depending on where I am. You know, yeah, and the so laws are different where you kind are of my too. Reasoning. The laws, you know, for picking mushrooms yes. versus where I am here in California versus where you are in Minnesota, those are also different too. Yeah, in Minnesota, there are certain places. It kind of varies. You need to do research on exactly where you are. There's certain districts and park services that you you can't go off trail at all. Nothing can be picked. State parks around here in the Midwest, you're all good for the most part. Just don't pick plants. But mushrooms, berries, stuff like that, you're cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that kind of leads us into something that is coming into a, into season right now during springtime and something that you're kind of passionate about. And that's something called ramps. And for people who are unfamiliar with ramps. The rampy ramps. Yeah, but for people who are unfamiliar with ramps because maybe you're just getting into foraging and you're just learning how to cook with these wild foods, ramps are something that you will – they're essentially wild onions, right? Can you explain a little bit about that group of or species of plants? Yep. So ramps are an allium, same family as onions and garlic, and they're one of – a lot of people think they're the first thing that comes up in the spring – Usually where I am, it's the first thing that's going to come up is probably going to be a little bit of some mints or some nettles, the baby tops of the nettles. The ramps will be a little bit later, but they're an onion. But they're 
a very special onion. I mean, I love them. Chefs, I don't, I don't know a chef that does not obsess over them <laughs> in the spring. You know, especially in the Midwest and in New York, any restaurant that cooks seasonally has been working with root vegetables all winter and maybe some storage onions and cabbage. So I I see over-harvesting being a really big issue to talk about in the foraging world in the next years moving forth as things just, you know, with the, the burgeoning interest as it is. Yeah. But the ramps, I think, are just in such such danger because they are, you know, in spring, one of the most prized things that comes up in spring. And we are so feverishly hungry as a society for them after our cold winters that it just kind of exacerbates the picking of them. And ramps take a long time to to go to seed and to reproduce. I know some people that pick that only pick from a patch every five years. Wow. Basically, what, I, what I've decided to do is I've decided that I, well, first you got to know there's a couple different parts to a ramp. You have the bulb underneath, mm-hmm. that's the oniony part. It's kind of like a green onion with big floppy leaves. You have the bulb underneath that gets progressively larger as the season moves on before the tree cover gets too large to take away the sunlight as they're, they're a spring ephemeral. So they come up before the tree cover has grown and then they go back down um, kind of right before summer. But they have a bulb and they also have these big elliptical floppy green leaves and the whole, the whole part of the plant tastes like a really, really good garlicky onion. Mm. They're really, really great. And you can do all kinds of stuff with them. But if you dig up the bulbs, they're not going to come back. If you just snip the leaves, which is how I know a lot of Native Americans, like the Iroquois, used to harvest the ramps, or they just take parts of the leaves, then, I mean... From my experience, you're not hurting the plant at all. Right. Obviously, you don't. You still don't want to go in and just like clear cut all the leaves. <laughs> but what I've decided to do is I've decided that I, I mean, until further notice, I'm not going to dig any more ramps at all, and I will not purchase ramps that are have their bulbs dug up from any purveyors that I do not know personally that harvest them in a very sustainable way, Mm -hmm. which is, which is only two harvesters around here. And I, I know how they operate. They rotate through their patches and they're not, they're not taking every single onion out of a clump because they grow in these clumps. And if you take the whole clump, like a little colony, the, it's not going to grow back. You know, it's going to take a long time for them to come back. So, and it kind of basically, reminds me... that's my stance on on the ramps. I'm I'm telling people that they should not 
do not go and dig them. First of all, it's probably illegal because you're probably digging them off state land in the first place. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of people do have friends with private land. I have a lot of those. But a lot of people, I know especially, you know, line cooks hard up for money that want to impress their chef Mm. might just go out, take a shovel, hit that state park quick and bring back 30 pounds. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask pounds, you. Is is, is that pounds. that's what people traditionally do? Is they'll they'll go there with like a shovel? They'll go literally just with a shovel and just dig up the whole thing. Absolutely, yes. Oh, that's yes. crazy. Yeah. Yes. So, it's, so dig I'm up thinking the whole it's thing. so your approach is a, a lot more holistic. So it, it reminds me of kind of you know tending the wild, which we talk about on the show a lot, which is a, a regenerative system, a sustainable system for these plants to regrow like it you said it was kind of like a green onion and if anybody knows green onions you've like you can regrow a green onion right so it's kind of that idea that you're only cutting the top so you're not removing the root system in the bulb which just permanently removes it from its environment and you allow it to kind of do its thing and hopefully seasonally come back next year because it sounds like if it's only during spring it's during a very short period of time that you can harvest these yeah and A way to even go further is what I've done at my grandma's house. So my grandma didn't know what they were, and she kept on hearing me talk about ramps. And I got the idea, you know what? I should show grandma what ramps are (laughs) by planting some in her yard. So every year, I try to bring a couple more ramps out. And we keep increasing grandma's ramp patch. Nice. But what I do is I take some of the ramps that I buy that I buy from someone that harvests them sustainably, the whole ramps, so the bulb and the leaf, and then we plant them in a shady, wet spot in her yard, and then eventually she will have a nice big ramp patch. It's going to take a long time. But it's it's more of a statement too. I mean, she's not going to pick them and eat them. She just wants to enjoy them as right. visually, mm-hmm. as a you know, an indicator that that spring is coming and the growing season is ahead. So the moral of the story is, you can buy sustainably harvested ramps from your local co-op or wherever you know to get them in the spring and take. Take, say, take half of those ramps and plant them in your yard and let them grow and then plant more and plant more and shoot, bring them out to a park and plant some out there after they've mm-hmm. grown at your place. Absolutely. You know, if everybody plants some ramps the way that we've been digging them up, we'll be okay. But it's something that as a society that wants to enjoy you know, hyper seasonal food, we really need to start thinking about how we can replenish what we've taken from the land. When I visit your website, Forger Chef, you've got some really cool recipes that you can make with ramps. Like what, can you give a couple examples of what you would use them for, what you would use them with? I think I saw one with um, chimichurri. I'm pretty sure that was with Monarda and ramps. Yep. Uh, Chimichurri, like you put on Put on a steak. Mm-hmm. I think probably the the customer favorites at you know at any restaurant I'm at. I mean, who doesn't love pesto? Is taking the leaves and making pesto 
and then you just put it in the freezer and you take the pesto out as you need it and it does you don't even need the bulbs you can make it with only the leaves oh okay that's good to know yeah because i i don't so that's that's a great way to store them uh i mean you can dry the leaves and they they make like wicked salad dressings like Put it into a little buttermilk with some sour cream, and it'll make ranch. You make ramp ranch. I think probably my favorite that I came up with, one of my favorites that I came up with last year is uh, everybody likes sriracha. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple different ways that I ferment jalapenos or Fresno chilies to make hot sauce. So I've made a red sriracha with the ramp bulbs. But now I'm trying to focus on only sharing recipes that have the leaves. So I did a really quick ferment with jalapenos that are de-seeded and then ramp leaves just for a couple days. And then you buzz it up and I have the proportions kind of dialed in so that you get a, a green kind of fermenty, funky sriracha that tastes like ranch. Dang, that sounds so good. That tastes like ranch? So, yeah, yeah. No ramps. way. Oh, like ramps. Yeah, I was like, hold on a second. Wait, that, okay. That, that tastes like ramps. Yeah, that's that sounds amazing. Dang, that sounds really good. And that's what it's all about is, is the seasonal foods and making sure that we're learning how to identify them and that we're learning how to not only forage, but also uh, proliferate, making making sure that there's some type of regeneration with these type of, uh, even with invasive species too, right? Like you were, you were talking about invasive species, I believe, earlier too. How exactly do you use invasive species in your cooking? Well, invasive species, there's a, lot of there's a, there's a few that I will use, and they I would kind of lump them into, you know, plants that I don't have to worry about over harvesting. <laughs> so that could include nettles, wood nettles, cow parsnip, and I mean, anything from the mint family, especially uh, angelica, invasives, strictly invasives. I mean, there's a number of them, but Japanese knotweed, garlic mustard, I mean, you can do all sorts of things with them. A lot of times it's just going to be, you know, prepared and eaten like a vegetable. I mean, technically, I would say that I would say that a lot of mints are invasive. Because I'm just trying to figure out, you know, for a lot of the time. Oh, go for it. What, What about mint? I mean, I'd say mints are very, very invasive, you know, but they're also a common garden herb. Uh. I would say most of the plants in my salad mix could even be called invasive. Uh, lamb's quarter, purslane, chickweed. You know, a lot of these things that I really, really prize are thought of by most of my farmers as weeds. And they yank them out of the greenhouse. But now a couple of the farmers have noticed that they can take those things they were yanking out of the greenhouse and they can sell them for twice as much as what's growing in the greenhouse. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And so, so that, I mean, that, that kind of leaves me to, 
Yeah, that that brings you to your next project, right? Like you said that you were doing something pretty cool in that respect. And I don't know if that's even available to the public, if that's like just for you, kind of your own personal use, your salad mix. But what what do you got going on there? Like, what, what are you doing with that? Well, it's it's more so just the the idea of okay, I really value wild plants, and I think that the future of food, the future of foods that we consume as humans, should be a hybrid of old foods that we have forgotten about collectively as a society, and uh, intelligently harvested and grown uh cultivated ones mm-hmm. you know so the the issue is before i was at a restaurant that was smaller and i would harvest a lot of the plants from my girlfriend's farm in wisconsin where i'm at right now this beautiful place outside of menominee i would harvest a lot of the plants myself and that's okay for a very short period of time and it helped me learn a little bit more about the landscape here mm-hmm. but now I'm at a restaurant where I need 50 pounds of salad greens a week I need a thousand pounds of vegetables a week wow you know I need 150 chickens a week yeah so the scale of things it it's a to me it has a real interesting and challenging aspect to it because now I need to find as a chef, how can I source these things that I believe in? And basically the only way to do that is I have to create the demand for it. And I have to, instead of the farmers telling me when things will be harvested, I am finding that I have to tell the farmers and teach them how to use and harvest these plants. So it's a complete reversal of how the chef farmer relationship typically works. Uh, I mean, for instance, the way that we now source uh, spruce tips, I am having Amish children pick them and they had to send me a whole bunch of different species. I just said, Hey, I want you guys to start picking spruce tips for me. They should be outside right now. Go outside and pick some spruce tips. Pick them from a couple different trees. Send me a couple different species. Mark the boxes so you know where the, which tree they came from. I will taste them, and then I will tell you which ones I want you to pick. And never <laughs> pick them so from the top awesome. of the tree or pick too much from the tree. Because then you're going to stunt the growth of the tree. So I joke that I've been giving Amish kids lunch money since... 2013 but it's not not far from the truth but what we found is that now now they know exactly which species that is not too bitter and which flavor i like so now they know exactly where to go and now we have a a chain of supply that we're building but it's been it's been really fascinating to try to figure out how how i can source these things i mean if that's going down a list of my my wild salad mix that my girlfriend's mom discovered from plants talking to her uh on the top of a hill or if i if i'm running giving farmers a rundown of that and 
and trying to tell them which plants I want, what, what time to harvest the plants, which part of the plant I want harvested for the salad. If it's that or if it's going to another one of my farmer friends and giving them seeds that I've collected from wild plants. I mean, there's a number of different ways that I've gone about it, but this year will be our biggest year, my biggest year and the restaurant's biggest year, working with wild greens especially. And then, I mean, once I get the supply chain rocking and I can pay people, you know, a, a living wage for these things that we want to sell, yeah. then I think it'll really be the win-win and I can I can supply 50 pounds of lamb's quarter for a salad every week. And I don't think it'll be a problem. And then it's going to be really fashionable and everyone's going to want to do it. They are. I can already see it catching. Like I want a bag of your special wild lettuce. As a matter of fact, I'm sure a lot of the people listening want a bag of your special wild lettuce. And that makes me think too. So the difference to grow. Yeah. I, I mean, but the differences between, um, forging just for, let's say yourself and versus a small family versus um, trying to grow something commercially for, you know, let's say, you know, 100 pounds, 50 pounds of salad grains a week. Do you think it would be easy for somebody like myself uh, or like somebody in the audience with a small family to go out and forge enough wild greens or or wild foods to supplement their their diet? Um, I don't know, like healthfully supplement their diet with wild greens and wild edibles. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's a big absolutely. question. Because I'm always if, wondering. If you if... have a family, if you, yeah, if you have a family or if you're by yourself or it's you and a significant other, here's the, the best part about picking greens yourself. As long as you're going to a place, you know, it's not off the side of the road. So it hasn't had a bunch of chemicals and right. crap sprayed on it. As long as you know you have a solid place to go pick the greens, most of the salad greens, I mean, all really all of the salad greens that I'm going to, to be selling in the best salad mix that I've ever tasted in my life, they're all weeds. They're all weeds. <laughs> and they grow like weeds. But when you pick them fresh and you get them to your fridge in a reasonably, you know, quick succession. I will have salad greens that I pick myself last for two weeks in my cooler fresh. I, you know, I've noticed that too, where, where I will buy a salad two green weeks. mix just from, just from like, okay, so this has actually happened to me. So I remember buying salad green mix when I was learn when I, when I knew we were going to move up here to central California and I bought it at the grocery store or whatever. And I brought it with this in a cooler and obviously a cooler isn't the best best environment for it but we brought it in a cooler brought it up and we we were in san francisco and we bought some salad greens from the farmer's market and we went all the way back down and it was funny because the salad green that we had brought up started to wilt almost immediately whereas the stuff that we got from the farmer's market that was just picked fresh that morning lasted i mean it was like a two-week thing and i can only imagine you're, if you're picking something wild um, it's more robust than even a monocrop uh, of like small spinach greens and kale and Absolutely. baby kale and stuff. So it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a lot more robust. And not only is it going to be uh, more flavorful too, it's it's probably, it, it's undoubtedly more healthy for you. You're getting a lot of those micronutrients and phytonutrients that you just typically 
you know, don't get or in those type of uh, quantities from a commercial blend that you would be buying at your store. So and it's free. It's free. You go out there and you can collect it for free. It's a great way of saving money as well, too. Also, by improving your health and identifying wild plants, which just gives you a deeper sense of nature connection. Yeah. And it's especially, you know, if you have if you have a garden or if you have a, a small, tiny little area, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of area. If you have a small area where you could plant a little bit of lamb's quarter and a little bit of purslane or a little bit of chickweed, you will have basically an endless supply of the most nutritious greens to eat. And the best part is that the more you pick, the more it grows, <laughs> you know, picking, picking the greens just makes them, it just makes the plant want to grow more. So it's, it's just really a, a win. But yeah, I've noticed that my, my shelf life of the greens is just, it's just ridiculous for how long they last. But it's, I mean, kind of to go circle back to the question, it's totally uh, possible to, you know, support a family or support a few people just personally harvesting uh, wild greens. I mean, wild vegetables, what we would call vegetables, like tubers and storage organs, I don't, like I said, I, I don't, I take kind of the same philosophy with ramps where I don't try to dig things up. Mm because greens are going to grow back easily and storage organs are going to take a lot longer. I don't really suggest harvesting those, but as far as greens go, I mean, you're just, it's like walking into a supermarket outside. <laughs> right. A really, really good one. Yeah. And you know what I saw online too on, um, on your website, forgerchef.com, that you had a project that you were working towards, and it looked you just had a video up, and it was talking a little bit about yourself and your background and everything. And do you want to talk about a little bit about what you got going on, some of your projects that you have going on over there that you might want to highlight? Sure. Yeah. So the video, I when I was working on the cookbook for my mentor, uh, Lenny Russo. He's the celebrity chef from the Midwest. I was the recipe editor and food stylist, originally the photographer for his book uh, that just got, got published last year. I got to work with a number of different professional photographers, and one of them also liked to make videos. Mm -hmm. So we got to be friends, Perfect. and we started shooting videos together just, just for fun, you know, just for fun, just to go outside and, you know, shoot a little video on cooking stuff outside, finding things. We were just playing around. That's cool. Like, it sounds like, yeah, like you guys kids. were just friends. Yeah. So it's this totally uh, creative outlet. And eventually it got the attention of a couple different broadcasters, you know, online content suppliers and different things like networks. that. So different media networks. So we've been talking for a while about the possibility of doing a show. So it's something we're still working on. We're tentatively planning to just shoot this year and then premiere in 2018. 
exactly what form it will take is kind of up in the air, but there's going to be something, and it'll be pretty cool. So, yeah, the trailer's up on my website. It's up on my Facebook page. I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's up on YouTube. Cool. Yeah, and the, yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I, I'm really, really happy with it. Yeah, it looks super high quality. I definitely suggest everyone to go over to ForgerChef.com or obviously um, in the show notes of this episode. We will definitely um, we'll definitely link to that so people get get a good view of that. So just before we go, I know that we're reaching our time here. How can people reach out and get to know you a little bit better? Well, you can follow me on Facebook or you can go to www.ForgerChef.com and subscribe on there and then you'll get the latest updates and things of what's going on and i mean my emails in the site if people have direct questions or if you just want to know what kind of mushrooms in your yard i get a lot of questions about that too and it's always kind of fun it's like a game right so you've you've become uh the mushroom identifier for uh your friends and family and, and everyone online now from australia to china oh wow <laughs> crazy okay yeah that's cool and i i definitely to, to, to every, everywhere in between yeah yeah, I, I recommend everybody definitely going over to Alan's website. It's beautiful. Um, I can understand why somebody hired him to do the photography for their cookbook because all the recipes on there don't also sound amazing, but they also uh, they look amazing as well, too. I'm, I'm really excited to try some of the things that he has on there. So thank you, Alan. I'm super grateful that you spend an hour here with me and sharing a little bit of your knowledge and what you're passionate about right now. And I hope to have you on in the future. For everybody out there, stay wild. And thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.